our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Peter. And sitting right across the table from you, also in our New York City headquarters, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Fair Podcast. And Zach, you are right across the table, which is uh, a rare occurrence. So thanks for journeying all the way to New York. It, you know, no problem. It's been it's been a delightful visit so far. I got to help you guys launch a magazine, and now I'm drinking one of the top 25 rosés of the year. So life is good. It's pretty delicious, right? Isn't it good? It is. It is. We'll we'll get into that. I don't want to I don't want to preempt the uh, the podcast topic before we get a chance to banter. Well, then, with then let's, then let's talk about a real topic, which okay. is that. Last night after the magazine launch party, right, <laughs> I'm waiting for the L with Naomi to go back for a long time, and you come down the stairs waiting for the L, and you're on your way to air Champagne Parlor, so with a bunch of other songs to drink champagne. Look, Adam, all I can say is we weren't in, we're not in Italy. Uh, <laughs> if, if if this was like our last podcast uh, in person together, I would have been heading to a wine bar to drink. Something like Prosecco or maybe some Amarone. But uh, but here in New York, I don't Did some of your song friends call you out as being a hypocrite? No, they... Well... Did they? <laughs> they did. There were, some, there were some, let's say, there was a little bit of... Uh, there were some snarky texts uh, in the planning of of said outing. But, exactly. Uh, and what did you drink, Zach? Champagne. Well, you're not going to go to what air champagne? Oh, champagne? Oh, um, we definitely had the Jose Daunt 2011 VLB. I definitely. I don't... You're saying like we definitely... No, because that's what I remember. <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, just uh, I, without going and getting the photos out of my phone, I'm going to... Oh, that was a bottle I ordered, so that's the one I remember clearly. <laughs> okay. Um, How many bottles did you have There were just two, because there were just three of us. So, okay. Uh, so it was, a, it was a relatively low-key evening. You know, I had to be functional for the podcast. No, I, I hear air champagne probably was great, actually. Yeah. Was it, did you enjoy yourself? <laughs> we did. It was very nice. We had a lovely time. Uh, it was very funny because um, they are. It's very. I, I know we've we've had we've had you've had your we both had our points about snobby psalm shit, but I will say that um, there is something that is nice about um, a place that, and they do a good job, I think, of making their champagne reasonably affordable. Their markups are lower than most places, and I, I dig that. I think that's a really cool thing. And again, I think both you and I. Are, as we said on that podcast, love champagne. It's not a knock. Um, and when you get a chance to experience it, in um, you get a wide range of champagnes to work with, and you get a chance to kind of um, drink them at a price that's, you know, for the United States, pretty reasonable, then I think that's an awesome thing. So, yeah. you know, free plug to Ares if you guys are in the Yeah, United no, States. seriously, I mean, another free plug, Ariel owns that niche niche in Tokyo Record Bar. She, her, her, uh, her markups are lower than a lot of people in New York, which is, uh, which is cool. So I'm glad you had a good time. Just you know, wanted to point out that uh, <laughs> that's what you did. Um, but let's let's jump into to, um, this week's topic, which is the top 25 uh, rosés of the year. Um, so you know, we put up this list every year, and sitting to my right and your left are our editor in chief Emily Saladino. Hi, how are you? And our tasting director Keith Beavers. What's up, everybody? Um, and so you both are the experts here. You created this list uh, together with uh, a team of people. Um, so I, I sort of wanted to jump in really quickly, just ask you to start off like, you know, there's a number one wine that I think a lot of people would be very surprised by, right? There's uh, this list obviously does have some Provencal, Provencal Rosé, um, but the number one wine is not from Provence. Can you sort of chat about that wine and what made you guys decide to, to put this wine in the wine? Well, I'll talk from my side and then... Emily can talk for her side. I mean, I... Um, well, I guess, you know what? Before you talk from your side, and Emily said, why don't you talk about how you created this list in the first place? Okay. It's probably easier that way. We'll explain why you get into it. Yeah. 
So the process starts with us putting an open call out for rosés from all around the world, not just one part. Everything, every grape, every hue, everything, always rosé is made, doesn't matter, give it to us. And then um, I went through and I tasted every single one and I rated them with a system in the Vine Pair rating system, which is from A plus to B minus. We don't do negative reviews. We only do positive reviews. But we, so what does that mean? So if it got below B minus, what happens? If it goes below a B minus, uh, we just put it aside on a list and we – there are things about the wine that we don't think um, – that we don't think – what we're trying to do is we're trying to create reviews of wine – for everyone to go out and enjoy and not have to think like we're you can think about the wine but we're like look we've, we've done the work for you go out there and enjoy these wines maybe you don't want to think maybe you just want to read vine pair and go and, and go and do and grab so there are things below b minus that i would believe have flaws whether it's oxidation whether it's bad practices whether i can kind of figure out i can kind of feel like there's no there's something wrong with the fruit like there's something missing something lacking that the consumer would be like, why is Vine Pair talking about this wine when we don't, I don't really like it? Also, what's the point of talking negatively? You know, right. it's all about positivity. So um, I respect everyone's ability to make wine. I don't make wine. I, I, I love that people bring them in and I, I respect the work that's done into making wine, but we have to be judgment. We have to judge it at the end of the day. So that's what I do. Yeah, I love that too. I love like there's enough negativity on the exactly. internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so you tasted all these wines, mm-hmm. um, and you know you gave them ratings between what you're saying A, a plus and to, B minus. To B minus, and right? What happened next? <laughs> <laughs> well, Keith took a really long nap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How long did this take? How long did you just you but, your reviews alone take? About a month. Wow, okay. A month, the hundreds and hundreds of rosés. I mean, we're not talking like 20, 30 rosés. <laughs> we're talking hundreds of rosés. Um, and you really get to know you really get you really get to know this this process and this style of wine tasting from all around the world. You really get a sense of what people are doing, what's going on with the market, why people are doing what they're doing. And among all that, the people that are doing it right just kind of like they pop up and pop up on my palate, which cool. is really great. So I want to get into that in a second. But so you you review them, and then Emily, what happens next? So then Keith has a list of top contenders, right? Like the top ranked ones. And then I don't know. And how many of those were there? Do you remember? Oof. 40? 50? Mm-hmm. Around there. 300? No. <laughs> 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 That's a lot of work, guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. It's one of those things that when you tell your, your friends or your loved ones, like, oh, man, I'm tasting so many rosés at work. It's so hard. Like, no one feels bad for you. Um, but it is work. Uh, no, so I'm trying to think. Let's say 50. Um, we, you know, that, that made it through Keith's initial read. And so then we organized blind tastes amongst the staff here and some other industry folks um, to have a, a new, like a next layer, right? So like they made it past the first round and now we're tasting um, to see if there's variety within there, which ones please different palates. You know, we like to taste as a group and we like to taste blind so that we, in this level rather, so that we, like we already know we're working with wines that Vine Pair would cover. So why do we like certain ones and and not others? Um, So from there, we as a team, um, let's say a team of about 12 people, we rated and ranked our favorites. Um, And that's where, you know, when you read the list, some of like the goofier 
tasting notes come out where it's like, this is the color of my childhood bedroom. <laughs> and so, you know, and so I'm not going to lie to you, like, as the tastings went on, and I, too, had had quite a bit of, well, sometimes the spit bucket's far away. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 it was a Friday. <laughs> you know, we got, they got more boisterous sometimes. Um, but it was really cool to see um, just the diversity within the, the category Having done this now two consecutive years, um, it was a radically different spectrum from my perspective. Um, honestly, higher caliber from all corners, and that's really cool to see. A ton of extremely affordable rosés that weren't just, as Adam was saying, they weren't just Provencal imports. They were plenty of North American, which is not a sentence I've said before, like plenty of great North American rosés. Such cool Italian bottles, more than one that we loved made from Zweigelt. Um, you know, just really cool to see that sort of diversity. That was for me like a big trend that I took out from the 2019 or the 2018 rosés that we were tasting in 2019 versus the year prior. And we, we did, um, just, to, just to focus it even further, is when the wines were passed, after I reviewed them and they were passed on to the panel, we focused only on A minus and A plus. Mm-hmm. A minus so, A plus. Right, A minus A. Right, right. A minus A, A plus. <laughs> yeah, we didn't omit the A's. We did, yeah, <laughs> we weren't the A's. Yeah, you guys are no too, too good in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> too crowd pleasing, I would say. Yeah, and then, you know, what was cool was then, so we had these, you know, the A minus A and A plus wines, and we tasted them blind. And then Keith and I reconvened after the team had tasted. Because we, you know, we like had the reveal of what they all were. And so when we created the list, we, we wanted a mix, right? Like we wanted ones at different price points and from different parts of the world. So that they, the vast majority is very affordable, which is not unintentional. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's something that, again, we were very, very excited to do is to showcase how many great wines we had found from so many different regions. So Emily, you, you hit on this just a moment ago, and I wanted to ask a little more about it. Because when, when we did a podcast about the top 50 wines of the year, which is obviously a, a much broader um, array of wines and price points, and one of the considerations that I think, you know, we discussed with, with Adam was, and Tim was, you know, sort of this idea of like, you know, how much do you weigh price? And I know that for the ratings that um, are done here at Vine Pair, that price is a consideration, that, that the wine is... You know, that the price of the wine has to because it factors into the buying decision of anyone who's buying wine. You know, the, the cost matters. But with rosé, you know, I think it's most people's sort of gut instinct that all rosé is kind of the same price, more or less. Did you see a, a, a divergence in price points? And, and did that have to come into play in how you kind of ranked and rated and, and structured the list? Or was it more kind of like, eh, you know, all of these are between $15 and $25, so it's kind of all the same? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I don't think I like. I don't know too many folks who buy wine, whether they're buying it at fifteen dollars or fifty dollars, and that doesn't come into play. You know, I think about a friend of mine once got um, a reservation to eat at Per Se, which is this Michelin-starred, extraordinary restaurant here in New York, and she just talked about how pricey it was, and she loved the experience, but she was like. But man, is my rent check going to be tough this month? You know, you, you can't, no matter how much you love something, you know, you, most of us, <laughs> not everyone in the world, but most of us have, you know, economic realities. And so I, I just don't think you can divorce the, the price point from the, um, you know, there's like a cost value analysis, right? Yeah. Like you might enjoy something more if you feel like you're getting a steal. Then it goes too far and you're like, well, 
you get what you pay for. And I, <laughs> I don't want to drink something that's eleven dollars and gross. But if I'm drinking something that's eleven dollars and delicious, how delightful is yes. that? Those are the surprises. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so what were a couple of those wines on the list that you, that you felt like really stood out at kind of the bottom end of the price tier? Uh, see, the way the way I do it is I I do just I really just listen to the wine. Does that sound really pretentious? Um, <laughs> it does, Keith. God, that was really weird. <laughs> oh, God. Keith, shut up. Jeez. But, you know, like, I, I let it, I really think about every aspect of the wine when I'm tasting it because it's a big deal. You're putting this onto the internet. It's going to stay there forever like a tattoo. It's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> so, you have to make sure that you're honest. You have to make sure that, like, you know, what you're saying, you're honest and, and you have to make sure that you're giving the right the right uh, descriptions for it and really trying to get the right descriptions to the consumer. And for me, when I'm tasting wines, the price is not the first thing I think about. The first thing I think about is, well, actually alcohol content. And then I think about everything else. Why alcohol content? Alcohol content for me sometimes can um, really compromise the subtle aromas of a wine. The higher the alcohol gets, the more perception of heat, also the more perception of sweetness because sugar was once alcohol. So even beyond the residual sugar, which is the sugar left over from the natural sugar left over from the fermentation process that comes into the wine, that the acidity then balances. Sometimes the alcohol level gets so high that the heat compromises anything you smell in the wine because the heat is the first thing that's hitting your nose. Then after that, the sweetness of the wine basically is the residual sugar and that alcohol which is sweet and just kind of like messes messes with all the subtleties and mm-hmm. if wine is this beautiful thing that has all these different aromas that makes people freak out and it's not there that's an issue okay. um i so that's but and so what was nice about the rosés though is like you said rosés aren't always not all of them most of them are, are in sort of that nice 15 to 25 dollar price point um if the wine was, if the rosé was thirty bucks a bottle and it was an A plus, it was an A plus. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. I mean, it, it was. Now, the for, I mean, but that's not the case with rosé. You're not going to get that a lot. Yeah, do you have? I think there's the Chateau d'Esclan, which is like sixty five bucks right. or that whatever. Was the only one, and that's yeah, that's definitely an outlier in the well, world. Wait, of but when you did review those, both both for Emily and Keith, you guys talked about that. I mean, that is a sixty five dollar rosé. Like, there's not a lot of people buying sixty five dollar bottles of rosé. So like. Was that a factor too in thinking about like, yes. of course this bottle better be banging at $65. Absolutely. And you know, if, if it had been, for, well, it wouldn't have, I was going to say if it had cost $25, but it wouldn't have, right? Like it's a really sophisticated bottle. We actually said in the copy, I believe, like it's an outlier in all regards. Like this is the bottle of rosé that you buy when you're kind of trying to like impress your buddies and like it's not what you buy if you're like, oh, I'm going to a backyard pool party, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a different... There's a group for all of us. Unless you're going to like a backyard, <laughs> unless you're going to like a backyard pool party right. in the Hamptons or something. Yeah, right, yeah, right. exactly. Like it's, Not fun, just... Joby's rosé. Yeah. No, I think it's submitted. Bon Jovi, send us your rosé. Come on, John. <laughs> we know you're listening. Yeah, seriously. If anyone knows John, let him know. Or his son. Yeah, or his son. Let him know that we're we're trying to check out that in the Hamptons water uh, just to see. If uh, our biases are correct, I won't tell you what those biases are, but just send us the rosé. <laughs> but you know, one of the ones that for me was a real like bargain banger was one that Keith, you have found the Cherasuola oh. was so delicious. I think it's like it's twelve or eleven. Keith is dancing for those of you who can't yeah. see it, which is all of you. <laughs> but yeah, it's you know it's, it's like a bit more than ten dollars, and it's so cool. And talk about an outlier! Like it, t- it looks physically. This is a great kind of. 
I don't know, myth to bust, I guess, about rosé is, you know, it, it it's not that Provençal ballet pink. It's a rich garnet color, and it's it's very beautiful, but it's not what I think a lot of American consumers can think of um, when they think of rosé. And it was really crowd-pleasing, like great acidity, mm. kind of a, a cool, complex flavor that doesn't war with what you're... You could have it with a burger, you could have it with, like, yeah. corn on the cob, you know? It's, Love it's that rosé. really great. So... Speaking of it, Emily has taken us right where I want to go, which is back to my original question. It's like she's the editor-in-chief for a reason. (laughs) Which is that number one bottle, right, was another wine from Italy. Mm -hmm. What the... I mean, I'm sure that people who are used to Provencal Rosés and a bunch of French are like, how did you... I mean, come on. Tell me about what made this bottle the number one bottle in... And so I would say probably the majority of wines that were submitted that I watched is coming in, and this is I have no data points to back this up. This is one hundred percent just like what I sort of noticed when I watched Keith, you know, unpack boxes after boxes and put them on all the shelves here. Most look like they were from Provencal or mm-hmm. a lot of North America, actually, surprisingly, but not a lot of Italian. Um, what was going on, guys? Well, on my end, I I was what I saw in general. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about like. The, the Provence versus the rest of the world and Rosé. Um, but I was really impressed with... This Rosé situation is very, very complex. It's messy. Because Rosé is more popular than ever before. There are more Rosés out there than ever before. We all know Provence because we know Provence. Because the French are very good at marketing and we know Provence. And every year a ton of Provence comes out. But because of the popularity of, of Rosé... The market is flooded with rosé. It's flooded with really good rosé, and it's flooded, flooded with a lot of really, really bad rosé, and or rosé that's bad in the sense that it doesn't. They didn't. They didn't care enough, or whatever. They, whatever happened. It was all about the Benjamins. Yeah, it was all about the Benjamins. Whatever they, whatever reason they made the rosé was not for what. It just wasn't that good. So now we're in a situation where we have a ton of rosé on the market, and there's a lot of good rosé out there that's not Provence, but it's hard to find the good rosés that are not Provence. Because there's so much out there. So that's why I'm glad we did this. Because we get to go through hundreds and hundreds of rosés. And we get to find those. Instead of a consumer. Because as a consumer, you're just buying rosé because I'm going to the beach. What is this? It's pink. This whole wall is pink. I like this hue. I'm going to take this. You know, uh, but it, it was really crazy. And what I found was there are so many good rosés out there that are not Provence, and there are so many bad Provence wines out there because the brand of Provence has gotten to the point where they're flooding the market with their own crap. So it's just this really insane thing. So when you taste something like the Sicilian rosé that eventually made it to the top, which for me, I gave it an A+, I think, mm-hmm. um, and then it was up to the panel to make the decision, and then ultimately, I guess, Emily and I for the top. But like I, when I woke up the next morning and saw the Gracchi, that's number one. I was like, yeah! <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen. I'm like, wow! That's so cool. It's a rosé from Sicily, from Mount Etna, made from a grape called Norello Mascalese, which people know and people don't know. But it is beautiful, exquisite, and balanced, and soft, and has a nice weight on the palate. It has a slight viscosity to it. It has a little bit of a creamy strawberry yogurt thing going on. It has a slight bit of spice. It's like... It's got everything on the palate you want in a wine, and it's refreshing, and has high acidity, and it's pink. So, so it was basically just a great it was just wine. Everything was just yeah. a great wine, and that was. And now I pass it off to Emily because that's all. Like, I mean, that's all. Like, if I keep on talking about, it, I'm going to start drooling. I'm, <laughs> a, I'm actually going to interject really quickly with my own little bit of anecdotal evidence, which I think is vaguely relevant here. So, being on the vaguely, vaguely relevant, <laughs> uh, that's all I aim for most of the time, folks. Um, 
being on the restaurant side of this whole rosé trend has been really interesting because I actually think that my experience is sort of backed up by what you guys have been talking about in terms of the the experience rating and reviewing these wines, which is this year, like 2019, what I've seen in our restaurants is for the first time really people have, you know, rosé has been a thing for enough time now that you have a a rosé savvy enough community that people are actually kind of looking for other rosé besides Provence. It's the, you know, at the restaurant uh, at Dahlia Lounge where I run our wine program, it's the first time I can remember that I've had a, gone into summer without a single Provence rosé on our list. Wow. Not by wow. the glass, not by the bottle. And a lot of that has to do with that I have noticed that there has unfortunately been this real split in Provençal Rosé where it's either affordable and crap or good and expensive and doesn't fit into what people are looking for from Rosé in a restaurant setting, at least in our restaurant. And at the same time, the quality of Rosé that's available from all other parts of the world has gotten significantly better. And in a lot of cases, you get much more interesting wines that are still totally dry, are not are made for Rosé, they're not uh, byproducts of red wine production, and it's been really invigorating to see that our clientele, for the most part, is not like, wait a second, this isn't from the south of France, I don't want it. And that we can have, a, in our case, a wine by the glass from Washington and a wine by the glass from Spain that are our rosés and that are selling at least as well, if not better, than last year's Provencal iterations. We've so. come a long way from white zin and blush. For sure. Yeah. You know, we are a country that, after Prohibition, all we wanted was sweet and high alcohol. And we've evolved and evolved and evolved. And here we are at a time when... We are like the wild west of rosé in the United States. We'll take it's, we have a beautiful wide range of wines that are available to us, and we like all the different kinds. You can see on that list. I mean, the, this is twelve people that love wine sat and tried these wines after I reviewed them, and you could tell like this is a wide range of rosés that Americans like, and that's what's I think that's really cool about the future of the rosé market. In the United States. Yeah, you know, oh, sorry. No, I was actually saying that. Emily, what do you think? And then you were just like, yes. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I agree. I think that um, my fear, like this time last year, was that rose was becoming just this standalone category. Um, you know, where you'd walk into a bar and you'd be like, can I have bubbles or can I have rose or can I have, I'd love to see your whole list of reds, right? Like it's not like a, a diverse category for people. I, I feared it would be this standalone sort of, you know, the rose as brand thing. Um, and look, like to a degree that happened. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> the, just look at rose again. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you know, the roséification. I call it the rose creep, right? And so it's like rose creep is all too real but like while all of this like fun lifestyle branding was going on and like selling certs or like whatever it's being used to sell at this point no you know like while, while that was going on and that's fine like you know we live in a capitalistic world people want to make a buck um <laughs> at the same time winemakers across the world kind of upped their rosé game. And there were, there were all of these really cool bottles. Finding one from Sicily, we wouldn't have put it as number one just to, like, make a point. I love Provence. You know, I wasn't, like, <laughs> trying to go against tradition here. Um, we put it at number one because it was really a spectacular wine. Um, one that we were all excited about. People who have very different palettes and really different preferences, price points, etc. We're all really enthusiastic about this. And that's, like, what's super exciting to me about 2019 
2019, about drinking rosé in 2019, and what I'm excited for moving forward. You know, year-round rosé has become increasingly common in the United States, and that's something else that I didn't see last year as much. Um, and so, like, just winemakers, because they too are smart, are, um, you know, they're, they're making a good caliber product that is available to a lot of people, and is accessible to a lot of people. So one of the other things I know we, that was noticed a lot in the creation of this list this year was lots of Pinot Noir rosé, especially right. for North America. Yeah. And I know that when we talked about the podcast a few weeks ago in our banter section, Zach, you had said that like you were sort of suspect because you thought it was you know a lot of times Pinot Noir had just been the runoff juice as people were trying to make more concentrated Pinots. So I'm curious. If, you know, Emily, do you feel like that's what these Pinot Noir roses? Where did you see some of those, or did you most people who are trying to make, like the rose you both are drinking, you know, we're drinking now, right? Uh, people actually trying to make rose Pinot Noir because it seems kind of crazy, right? Pinot Noir doesn't sell a lot for a lot higher price than Pinot Noir rose. Yeah, I saw. I got, I got a lot of Pinot Noir rose, and it just, it's just on. It's just like any other rose. There was a lot of there was some bad stuff. Like the, if you just because you put Pinot Noir in your label. You know, 2004 is a long way away. I mean, it, it, you know, the sideways, sideways came out, it's gone. We had the Pinot thing, it's plateaued, we're done. You know, it's so, like Pinot Noir is Pinot Noir. And, but the thing is, you still have this, this memory. People still have this memory of Pinot Noir on a label. Seeing going, oh, well, it says Pinot Noir, so obviously I'm going to get it. It's a rosé, that's really neat. And then people are banking on that. So I did taste a lot of, you know, pretty bad stuff. But the, the thing is, like... The people that did the rosé right, they're like, you know what? We are going to make a rosé from Pinot Noir, and this is something we're going to give a shit about, and we're going to focus on, and we're actually going to... I mean, this wine we're drinking right now is a special case. I mean, she... What are you drinking? This is the in, in, uh, Inan, Inman. Inman? Endless, in, uh, Inman? The Endless Crush. Inman, Endless Crush. It's a, a, it's a, it's a single vineyard... Rose Pinot Noir from Rose. That's crazy. Which is crazy. But that's that's why winemakers are crazy, man. They're cool as shit. What they do is these kind these these are scientists. They're crazy scientists. They're farmers. They like, I have a great idea. I wanna do this. I'm gonna do a single plot of Pinot Noir. I'm in north and north I'm in I'm in I'm in the West Coast and I'm gonna make this Pinot Noir, but I'm gonna do it well. That's this is the kind of stuff that you that you wanna fall in love with. But um Right, Kathleen Edmonds in Sonoma. Right. Yeah. Right. So it but with Pinot Noir, it's tough. You have to make the decision if you're going to make a good one or not. Or you're just going to buy something from somewhere, buy Pinot Noir from Modesto and do whatever you want to do with it. But, you know, like, there, when people do Pinot Noir from Rosé, they do it right. It is a stunning Rosé, as we're seeing now. Right. And to use Endless Crush as an example, like, I think, first of all, I love the, like, extraordinarily romantic name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the story behind it is really lovely. This is someone who tasted Provencal-style rosé on their honeymoon and then decided to, like, they wanted to produce this wine. They wanted to make their own rosé. They're located in Northern California. And how cool, right? Like, that's not a gimmick of, like, oh, I'm going to make a Pinot Noir rosé. Look at me. You know, that's, like, this is what I've been inspired by. This is where I live. Like, what's more, like... You know, it's more natural and organic than that. Right. I don't mean organic in, like, the USDA. Way. <laughs> I mean organic in the more, like, right. ephemeral way. Right. <laughs> you know, we're doing this with organic stuff now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I just, I think that's really, like, I think that's a really cool thing. It, it speaks to, um, sort of what Keith is saying, it speaks to winemaking, not to gimmick right. Right. Mm-hmm. Zach, do you like it? I do. Um, you know, I think, that, I think, well, no, I think, I think, <laughs> I think Keith made a very good point, <laughs> which is, <laughs> <a caveat. laughs> which is that, that when 
when peanut when rosé generally, but especially I think with varieties like Pinot Noir, which are not they're not varieties that you can just easily make good wine from. It requires a degree of skill both to grow and to make wine from. So when someone who's talented like Kathleen Inman and focused on making an excellent rosé of Pinot Noir does it, I have no I had I was excited. I told you to save this bottle for me because I was <laughs> sure it would be I was sure it would be good and I I'm glad to find that my um, belief has been validated. I think you believed the, in the blind pair system. I did believe Thanks, in the blind pair system. <laughs> it's it's endorsed by me. Um, but so I think much going on. Yes. <laughs> but I think that there is. I think that I think that's that's a huge takeaway for me. From I mean, it's a wine takeaway generally. But rosé is, I think, you know, has has because it's become so popular. It's all the more important, I think, as consumers to recognize when someone is making rosé because they're trying to jump aboard a trend, they're trying to be, you know, they're trying to sell their, they're trying to sell more wine, and they may not take it very seriously, and sadly, the market is full of those wines, and that's why I think this project, you know, the the idea of doing a top 25 rosé list is not just content, it's public service in a sense, because this is a category where I think actually more than almost any other out there that people consume on a regular basis, it's very hard to parse through because most of them look the same on the shelf. You know, there obviously is a range of hues, but but often, you know, people are aiming for one of a couple of shades of pink. And there's a lot of appellations in the south of France that all kind of sound vaguely like Provence, even if they're more or less connected to actual region. And there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of ways to to make a rosé that is marketable, even if it's not good. And and so it's important to, you know, I mean, I'm glad you guys did this, undertook this project. It's not, you know, it's not an easy undertaking, as you heard. And it's a very worthwhile one because, you know, there there's a lot of crap out there and it makes finding the stuff that isn't crap um, rewarding, but also kind of necessary. There needs to be a, there needs to be something other to help the consumer. Yeah. I think that's why this is, this exists. It's important, especially because the wine's so popular. I mean, imagine that people going out there and be like, well, I went to, I read Vine Pair. I can, um, it's easy. It's easy. It should be easy. Wine should be easy for, uh, we're the ones that are supposed to help you find the wine. So, oh, no, please, <laughs> Adam and I are sitting next to each other, so I feel like I don't see that he's about to No, I was going to say, like, you, Adam, you might remember this. We got some reader letters. It was really heartwarming. Like, two weeks prior to publishing this, folks were writing in being like, when is the rosé list coming out? Oh, that's cool. I know, I was yeah. so touched by it, you know, and it's just folks who are trying to buy some pink wine. It's also, you know, to your point, like, there's some guidance. There's a lot out there. It's hard to navigate. So, final question, um, you know, to both Keith and Emily, but then also Zach, because you work in the restaurant industry, uh, so you see a lot of this as well, which is, okay, so obviously, best case is you read the list, or you read the vine pair reviews, and you can find a great wine. But I think when I'm out in the wild of uh, New York City and I'm talking to wine drinkers, a lot of people say that they, they try to think of some rules or some tips, right? So if someone doesn't see any of these wines on our list or any of the wines that Keith, you've given you know, a, a good score to um, in their local shops, are there is there any way to protect yourself from bad design? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm telling you, it's true. That's why we started this. We started this episode. I said it's it's a it's a it's a it's messy out there. Yeah, it's yeah. really hard. You can. The problem is, 
you don't know what wine bar you're going to. You don't know what restaurant you're going to. You don't know what, what's going to be in the supermarket. I could walk into a supermarket with a consumer and I could point out to them what I think are the best ones and which ones are – because you don't know with rosé. It could look like a beautiful bottle and you buy it. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe I should say – and this is definitely won't work. What I would want to say is if you see a beautiful bottle that's shaped weird, don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you see a bottle that's very, very ornate, don't buy it. But then again, we tasted a couple beautiful wines that were ornate bottles. Yeah. So it's like, it's not, it's not easy. You gotta, you gotta read. Everyone wants that money. I know. If, if, so if you want my advice, which you're gonna get whether you want it or not, okay. my my two pieces of advice are one, with the exception of some of the wines that we talked about that are on the list and whatnot, I personally at this point in time would actually avoid. Certainly rosé from the south of France. I might avoid French rosé, period, if you are trying to avoid... That is a hot take. That's a hot one, man. This is just, this is just purely for people... This is just purely for people... Calm down, Zach. That is a hot take. I'm ordering to get calls. Yes. No, no, no. region of Provence. That is, <laughs> this is, I want to make it clear. This is Zach's opinion. You just pissed off the coat of sword, dude. I want to be good. Whoa. All, all invitations to France have been thrown out the window. I want to be Whoa. very clear here. There is a lot of excellent rosé that comes from Provence and from France generally. I think my point is that, unfortunately, there's also a lot of crap. And if you are not comfortable in your own ability to sort the wheat from the chaff, such as it were... Then to me, because of just to this point, the economics, people are not importing as much crap rosé from Italy or Spain. I disagree. <laughs> I don't know about that. I disagree. I mean, I tasted a lot of really crappy wines from Italy, too. <laughs> and Spain. Fair enough, I guess. I mean, I think I think the other thing and I would look for States, is... And Chile. Yeah, well, there's a lot of... And Argentina. And, and Australia. Australia. And New Zealand. And New Zealand. And Greece. Yeah, yeah. well, look, like, this, this, comes back to, this comes back to what Keith said. The real answer is no. <laughs> so I'm trying to not just say no. I'm trying to give you but something some, to no, work sometimes with. Sometimes no is okay. I think we have to be, you know, sometimes no is okay. But that's Fair. real, and that's okay to be real. I mean, that, that's, that's, and I, I hate to say it. I didn't want to, when you asked me that question, my, there was about a, a you had this act, I, I had all these things in my head, like, what do I say, what do I say, and I'm like, you know what, no, it's not, it's not okay. I mean, it's not easy, it's, it's okay, it's not easy. It's tough out there with Rosé, you know, the struggle's real. The struggle is real. I, I do think there is, like, a tip that we could share is... In general, right? Like anytime you're shopping for wine, if you're someplace where the staff seems that's it, you know, even remotely engaged, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you can you can chat with them and and like be true to your own palate. Like if you tend to like things that are a bit sweeter, if you tend to like things that are a bit drier, if you've had one wine and you remember the name of it, share that with the person working there. Mm -hmm. Um, That for me, I I always really value that and like. Look, I've also been in, in grocery stores and I've like asked the staff for recommendations and they're like, lady, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't all, it's, even that too is not a surefire right. thing. But like you, you know, just definitely be confident enough in yourself to ask questions when you don't know for sure. Oh, yeah. You know, like there's just, there's no harm in that. And like the worst thing, you'll never end up knowing less. Right? Like, if you ask right. someone who knows nothing and they're like, I don't know, you're like, okay, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you find if there's a wine shop, I mean, that's it doesn't matter. Wherever you are in the United States, it's tough out there in the United States because of post-prohibition laws. But, like, you are – if you have the – if you're lucky enough to have a wine shop that is remotely gives a shit. Like, mm-hmm. you can have someone just go, I like that one. Buy that one. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. like, like if that's as, if that, is that as much of an engagement as you're gonna get, well, maybe you have the same palate. I don't know. Got <laughs> that, you know. But like, if you're lucky enough to get it, but it's like, you know, like someone who's gonna actually talk to you, yeah, that, then it's a little bit easier. But if you're on your own out there in America trying to buy rosé, it's tough. My yeah, last, my last piece of advice is, when in doubt, just get it really cold. <laughs> yes. Like like anything yes. else, you, you probably can choke it down a lot better if it's ice cold. Put those sleep. Just, it, if, if, it worked for, if it works for every macro brew in this country, it'll work for cheap, crappy rosé That's true. Well, guys, I want to thank both Keith and Emily for joining us today on what was a super fun conversation. Yeah, thank you That's for fun. having us. You're welcome. And, you know, Zach, I'm glad you enjoyed that rosé. That was saved for you. I'm still finishing it up. but uh, Welcome yeah, back to New York, Zach. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's been a pleasure being here. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.